Big data, algorithms, machine learning. This week, we take a look at the newest ways fashion and beauty companies are using data to understand behavior to sell more and waste less. Each episode, we speak to those in the know, tech people who are influencing fashion and fashion people who are using tech in new ways. We look at what's happening now and what's coming next. I'm Megan McDowell, and this is The Tech Edit by Vogue Business. The Tech Edit by Vogue Business is brought to you in association with PayPal Credit, helping your customers buy now and pay over time. Go to paypal.com forward slash PayPal Credit to learn more. Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of The Tech Edit by Vogue Business. I'm your host, Megan McDowell. It seems like we've been talking about the secrets hidden in data for years. And admittedly, the idea of data sounds pretty vague, and it's certainly hard to interpret. But in fashion and retail, data ultimately is just a way to quantify behavior. And what we can do with that data is constantly improving. Here with me today are three people making use of data in totally new ways. I'm so excited about today's conversation. We have Julie Bornstein, CEO and co-founder of The Yes, a new shopping app that totally personalizes each user's experience. Ganesh Srivats, CEO of Moto Operandi, a fashion discovery platform that lets people shop directly from the runway. And Yarden Horwitz, co-founder of trend prediction agency Spate. Welcome. Hey. Hi, Megan. Okay, Julie, I'd love to start with you. About three years ago, you left your role as COO of Stitch Fix to start something totally new. And for the longest time, all we knew was that you had gotten $30 million in funding. You'd recruited this amazing team of machine learning experts. But just recently, you finally launched what you had been working on. So tell us about The Yes. Yeah, The Yes is a new shopping platform that is really the culmination of my experiences over the last 20 years working on e-commerce and fashion and data. And it is a consumer app, iOS only, and it's women's fashion only to start. And it is really a store, in essence, built around each user. So the idea is that the world has evolved a lot. Data can be really useful if understood well. And the consumer experience uh, right now is quite overwhelming online. There's a million websites and so much product, and it really requires a lot of work to sift through it. And so our concept is that each user gives us a little bit of basic information that's super high signal and really helpful. And we basically share back with them products, brands, trends, that are relevant to them. And the app is a learning app. Um, so much like Spotify and Pandora, where you thumbs up and thumbs down music. In our case, you yes or no product that you like, brands that you like. And soon it will also be people who are uh, your friends and over time influencers. And that helps us learn about your style and your preferences. And it's basically just a much sort of faster, more effective way to get the things that you might like surfacing more quickly. We work with brands directly. So we have uh, 150 brand partners right now, and that number will grow from high to low. Um, and so we have Prada and Jimmy Choo. We have Frame and Theory. We also have Madewell and Levi's. And that range of brands, which include DTC brands and uh, traditional wholesale brands and specialty brands like Aritzia, really gives you a great selection. So whether you tend to shop on the high end in the middle or you like that high-low mix, uh, there's a great assortment for each user. 
you know, there's so much about using data in a way that is then built into a product and applied for the consumer is about the quality of the data, both the data that comes in and then, of course, the data that comes out. And so when we spent time building sort of the foundation of our algorithms that make the recommendation for each user, we knew that we would need to understand some really core information. So there were really two groups of data that were critical. One was building out the taxonomy of the sort of product category so that you understand everything possible about a garment. And the second is understanding the user and knowing what questions to ask in order to have your first round of recommendations feel personal. So that first round of personal recommendations was very much based off of these questions that we did a lot of testing around together. And they include brands, which tells you a lot about price point and aesthetic. Um, as well as the brand itself. And then we ask a series of questions. The most, I would say, nuanced one is the style question. So you can ask things like fit and you can ask things like color and those are really helpful. But style is really the hardest piece to get and it is so nuanced. And so we basically use models to identify which attributes tend to be the most polarizing. And so we ask a question around what would you never wear, which is incredibly helpful. And then we also ask a series of images of style types that range from, you know, flats for shoes to turtlenecks with mesh to, you know, for clothing and then everything in between. So we have hundreds of style clusters, some of which we're asking you in your onboarding, and then we continue to ask you questions over time. And those data points really give us a strong signal around kind of elements of product that together create style. What we found was that, you know, the initial questions that a lot of style sites ask around classic or preppy or boho are telling enough when it comes to recommendations. They're very general. Usually there are aspects that people like and aspects that people don't like about those groupings and no one is just one thing. And so what we ended up deciding was we needed to break fashion down into a much smaller set of data points when it comes to style to start to learn user style. I've been playing the app for, you know, the past week or so. And it's, it's funny, we actually talk about playing the app because it has that yes, no functionality. And it's it's totally true that like when I'm logging on now, everything I see, it's insane because I love everything. And I'm like, how do you even know this? But I guess the way it works is like anything I'm seeing, that doesn't mean necessarily when you play it, you'll be seeing the same thing, right? So it's like every single person has their own, their whole totally different experience. Yeah, it's actually shocking to see it in person because you look at your friend's feeds and they're completely different than yours. So, you know, what each person sees is really different. And, you know, the way that AI works, there's a lot of human thought and input into building these algorithms, but there is a black box element of, you know, you combine all of these thousands of data points and what comes out is not something that you could manually curate yourself. 
it's a really different experience. So yes, everybody's home feed is different. And then, you know, we built a feature that allows you to start to see your friends, you can follow your friends. And so, you know, the thinking is, we want to show you things that appeal to you. We also want to continue to test new things with you. So there's this explore element to the algorithm. And then the friends piece is just a way to see things you might never have seen, because it's not something you would normally buy. You know, I've yet to, it's funny, I have about eight friends that I'm following. And I discover a few things that I like, but the algorithm and what I'm seeing in my own feed is much better for me than what my friends are seeing. We rebuilt the e-com platform on top of this AI infrastructure so that we have really a one-to-one store for each. It's really a one-to-one model. It's a data model for each user. And so, you know, to the extent we have hundreds of thousands of users, we have hundreds of thousands of of models built so that each user's experience is, is completely responsive to them. Well, Ganesh, you joined Moda Operandi in 2018. You also have a really interesting fashion tech background. You spent time at Tesla and at Burberry. You know, in the past two years, you've really been focusing on the company's access to data and ability to use data in new ways. So tell us a little bit about that. What Moda Operandi is, as you mentioned at the beginning, we would describe it as a platform for fashion discovery where customers can come and find very unique and differentiated merchandise. And the way Moda Operandi has done it since its founding is by giving clients direct access to designer catalogs and not through a, a retail, you know, a department store or, or online retail model, right? And, and that's kind of what attracted me to Moda. And I think what makes Moda unique and special is because it sort of upends the traditional architecture of the fashion industry where designers will p- produce a catalog of products and buyers would go and privately view those products. I mean, you mentioned runway shows, and sure, that's publicly visible, but a lot of the products that eventually make it to market actually shown private to a very exclusive population of buyers and editors. And to some extent, they are actually the ones deciding what gets produced and doesn't get produced and ultimately shown to customers, say, four to six months down the line uh, when these products hit retail stores. In a very interesting way, I'm on the other side of the problem from Julie because what we are trying to figure out is what products get made at all and how do customer choices get shaped because ultimately uh, customer choices are a function of what choices are made available to them, right, to some extent. And by allowing clients to directly access that catalog at the same time as buyers and editors are looking at it, sort of puts customers at the driver's seat and then suddenly some very interesting data comes to sort of a light Because how customers make choices are very different than how buyers make choices because buyers are looking for hits. The long tail theory of Chris Anderson, right, back in like the early 2000s, and he talked about Netflix and Spotify and how they're upending those industries and content. It has never happened in fashion because you have this sort of insider-ish game where a very small cabal of people get to decide what gets produced. But when customers are doing that, their choice preferences and and choice-making dynamics is very different because it's very hyper-individualized. And there's no real way necessarily to predict at that point what they're going to buy because every season is a totally different collection. And obviously, you can start building some algorithms on trying to understand people's patterns of behavior. But that's where the discovery really happens, is that the client is getting the sort of raw, unfiltered look at a designer catalog and then is able to sort of make determinations. And so what we are doing is trying to apply data on two ends of that spectrum. One is, how do we make the client experience for discovery richer by obviously making helping them make sense of that catalog? 
And half our business comes through a personal shopping stylist program and half comes through e-commerce. But in both those domains, being able to help the client navigate the, a vast catalog by, you know, directing them to areas in which they may or may not have preferences, right? And we want to be very careful because we do want to let them sort of see a broad range of products because we want to allow that surprise delight element and not to sort of hyper compartmentalize what they're able to see. But in doing so, what we're collecting, the data we're collecting on their preferences, what we found has a significant bearing on what eventually become fashion trends. And that's sort of like, I guess in statistics, you do a lot of sampling, right? And polling as a way to extrapolate into broader knowledge and information. And so these clients are like a seed client. And like I said, they're statistically significant. And we have enough within those the customer base is there enough clusters of clients, right, who start, you know, we start understanding the shared preferences that inform our ability to then purchase inventory from the same brands that is much more resonant and relevant to what we think are going to become fashion trends four to six months later. And what I found, at least in coming in, that this data was incredibly not harnessed as well as it could be, because what we found is as soon as, soon as we started buying inventory against that data, the productivity could be 4x to 10x higher than the inventory that we were buying on a discretionary basis. And so that sort of was a huge unlock for us. Then you start thinking, why are brands then not kind of taking advantage of that too? So that's the second side, which is taking that data, being able to go to designers and brands and not just buying inventory for ourselves, but hopefully trying to shape what they put into production. So that ultimately what comes in as choices for clients is more shaped by clients themselves than the industry to some extent, right? So that's sort of what fascinates me and excites me about Moda. That's so interesting, that element of actually sharing with brands, because I can understand that data would be so valuable, more valuable, for example, than like an Instagram like or something, because it actually shows what people are, are willing to put money behind, right? So it decreases waste and it helps them sell more at the same time. That's correct. And it's interesting you mentioned Instagram too, because people say, well, that's great. You know, you have Instagram also is doing the same thing. But there's a big difference between what I can just sort of like with zero cost on Instagram with something that I'm choosing to put money behind my hard-earned dollars. And you find that at least we find that the data we collect from transactions have a much higher rate of predictability than the data we collect from, say, people's preference uh, that they're declaring through likes and so forth. Right. Because we look at sort of, and we do look at that. We look at what people like and put in carts and then don't check out. And we try to look at the sort of metadata as well. And sometimes you get some interesting trends from that too. But the trends that are the most resonant, uh, relevant are the ones where people actually end up purchasing. And, that, and then how do you extrapolate that into broader trends? Right. And that's where we really apply a lot of data science. Julie, and I want to ask you as well, because as I understand it, you also share some data with brands. I, I was talking to, um, Kuyana's founder last week, and she said, you know, Kuyana is a direct-to-consumer brand, but they decided to join the Yes specifically because they wanted to know how the customer interact in the context of other brands. So tell us a little bit about that, what brands get to see. Well, part of the inspiration behind this company is wanting to partner with brands to help them grow. I think in the day and age of, uh, you know, the department store shrinking and Amazon trying to knock everyone off. We felt like, um, you know, I've been a brand lover since I was a child and was really excited to figure out how can we use this platform to help brands both obviously grow their businesses and find new customers, but also learn more. And so we have built really a data 
brand dashboard where brands can learn pretty much anything that you could find out from this multi-branded platform. So they can see what they are, you know, how many people are yesing and knowing their product. What are they yesing and knowing? What are they also yesing and knowing it with? What is their consumer? If you buy Kiana buying across other brands, what are the categories they're buying? What are the brands they're buying? What's the range of their price point? And so the goal is to provide them a much better, broader picture of who their shopper is and what are the other trends and activities going on by those shoppers where there may be an opportunity for them too. So Yarden, I'd I'd love to take it to you now. Tell us a little bit about Spate. You came from Google, so you also have an incredible fashion tech background where you sort of initiated the trend spotting at Google um, initiative, but then now you've started your own company and really built on what you learned about data and trends. So tell us what what Spade is. I think we met through my days at Google, but um, my co-founder and I, so Olivia and I, started the trend spotting division while we were at Google. And we predicted trends such as turmeric, face masks, and cold brew. And in doing that, we just realized we were sitting on something so powerful. And so we left Google and we started Spate, a trends prediction platform. And yeah, we use machine intelligence to analyze over 10 billion search signals and really understand what's going on in the world of beauty and wellness. We've been talking a lot about personalization and tailoring stuff to individual consumers, but your work is sort of more focused on big data. So how can you create something unique for a brand or for a consumer based on big data signals? That's the fascinating part. And that's where it gets really, really interesting is looking at over 10 billion signals. I mean, first, like, what does that even mean? But really the idea of, you know, looking at so much data and then running machine intelligence on top of it to help identify the patterns that are picking up, what's growing, what's declining, what's flat. And even if it's really, really niche, being able to spot it and then surface it, understand where it is in the trend cycle and help match it with the brands that can act on it. That's what's really powerful and identifying those shifts in behavior. So what consumers are looking for that might just be getting started, but could have the potential of blowing up and being the next turmeric. What are the different details that brands would be looking for that you can provide for them? We focus on two different areas. So we're really, really great at product development and marketing. And so we work with with the beauty brands and those teams, and we focus on three main questions. So those three questions being, one, what's the next big trend? So whether it's an ingredient trend, a category trend, a product trend, we're able to spot that based on patterns in the data, see what's picking up. And then the next question is, super important for when it comes to trend spotting, but understanding how competitive a trend is. So are there brands being searched alongside that trend or is it completely white space, no brand associated with it? Something that's completely generic at this point that consumers are seeking out, but they have no brand association yet. And then third being how to position that trend based on consumer needs. So we get into related searches and the context around a trend, why consumers are searching for it, what needs it's solving, concerns, benefits, um, they're seeking out alongside it. And that gets really interesting when it comes to understanding their language and using the same language that consumers are using in order to better resonate with them. So this would be like if, if consumers are starting to search for something you see, even if it's niche, you see a blip in the data, 
but they don't have a brand, they're, they're Googling, that would be a cue for a brand who's looking to develop something new. Okay, maybe we should be the brand that is identified with that trend early on. Is that sort of like what the unbranded searches would reveal? Yeah, exactly. So something like skincare fridges or soap brows, you know, started off as no soap brand brows? associate. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's a trend. Um, it's using cool. soap to, you know, get this fluffy brow look. And of course, I mean, I didn't know anything about it, but looking at, you know, data, it just brings up these trends and these words that consumers are using. And and yeah, no brand is behind it. So it creates a huge opportunity for a brand to get involved there. Any other things that you've seen recently that have been interesting? I know in the past we've talked about um, eyelash makeup and, and different stuff. Uh, anything else you're seeing that you can share that's interesting? Yeah, I mean... Uh... I can talk for days, but, um, but yeah, we talked about eyelash extensions right at the beginning and how we were seeing that, you know, consumers were searching for mascara specific to eyelash extensions. And now it's a whole category in itself, but really interestingly enough with lockdown, of course, eyelash extensions is a bit out of the picture. You can't get it done. So consumers are, you know, turning to magnetic eyelash extensions instead, which has been interesting, but more so we're seeing a lot of trends around almost like this merge of makeup and skincare. So eyebrow serums, um, lip gloss is really taking off right now. So hydrating lip gloss, moisturizing lip gloss, and even DIY lip gloss. So seeing some interesting brands emerge on Amazon that offer lip gloss DIY kits. I bet consumer behavior has really changed quite a bit in the past two months. Are you seeing that already in the data? We've been tracking um, how consumer searches have been changing over time with lockdown and whatnot. And you could just see frantic behavior at the beginning, the week of, I think it's March 16th. There's just a huge spike. There's a lot of frantic behavior there. And then, you know, the hair dye searches kicked in, consumers seeking out hair dye solutions. But what we're seeing that's really fascinating is just overall this idea of the at home spa and, you know, bringing in all these tools um, to your home. We were seeing this for a while, but consumers were really getting into microneedling, derma rolling, hydrofacials, any type of facial, and yeah, dermaplaning and so on, microblading, I can keep going. Um, but all of these services now, they don't have access to, so they're trying to figure out how they can bring it home. And so there's a lot of interest in, you know, microneedling pens, derma rolling, derma rolling for everything. So even, you know, men are using derma rollers now to help grow their beards. So a lot of different use cases, a lot of really interesting opportunity there for brands as consumers become interested in these tools and bringing it at home. That creates, again, similar to that whole eyelash extension idea of a whole new category around aftercare and all the different creams and products that can be used alongside that new trend. And, um, you know, thinking about how consumers are turning their home into a spa, what does that look like? Even from a fashion or a home perspective, what does that experience and that environment look like? And I could imagine that even if a brand, you know, you might not have time to develop a whole new product right now, but even if you had products that kind of spoke to this trend, this would be a cue for them to market that in that way, to position their product in that way. Exactly. So knowing um, that serums are needed or any type of product that can be used alongside it makes a lot of sense to start positioning around that and even creating content around it. Again, this is new territory for consumers. So helping them navigate this 
as well is just a really great opportunity for brands. Totally. Well, Ganesh, Yarden mentioned a little bit about how the current climate, I mean, the past few months have really affected her business. What are you thinking about at Moda Operandi? Are you thinking about digital fashion shows and how that affects your business? Would you ever use 3D models that look photorealistic, but they're not even real pictures? Like, what's on your radar there? Listen, I mean, this is like we're all playing in two levels now, right? I mean, given we have a business that's up and running, there's a lot of stuff that goes on just from a day-to-day management of making sure that, right, it's difficult times for consumers, for, our, for ourselves and so forth. That being said, to your point, it is also a time to be somewhat opportunistic to see where are the trends headed and how do you get ahead of them? And two of the trends that we see evolving and we're watching potentially breaks in our favor. One is the disruption of the so-called fashion calendar, right? Which is typically what happens is all fashion shows are aggregated either in September or in February. And it's always been sort of odd to me as coming as a little bit of an outsider, which is imagine if all the movies were always launched in the same month of the year and that you're forced as a consumer to like go quickly watch like 100 movies in a month. And that's what the fashion industry to some extent does. Now, that's because the industry is geared towards the buyer, as in the retail buyer, not the consumer. Because if you're consumer-oriented, you would think every month, what am I going to put in front of you to some extent versus, right, versus dumping all the products at the same time. And, and so we see the calendar is probably going to break up now. And there's a lot of discussion in the industry about how, how every month or there's a sort of a different think of what's relevant in the moment, how to be bring products to the consumer relevant in the moment. So I think that's a trend that plays very well to us because we would love to have trunk shows or, or, or content that we can launch on a monthly basis or weekly or whatever and have different brands follow different rhythms. The second thing is the digitization of that experience, right? Again, because it's not possible and definitely perhaps even unlikely in the near to late future that everyone's going to fly to Paris and Milan twice a year and be in crowded rooms, watch shows. Again, some of it may come back, a lot of it may not. Because And people are going to inevitably use digital tools to say, I want to give the same experience, but do it online. So how do we bring that excitement, that energy that some privileged few were previously able to enjoy in Paris and Italy and bring that to a much broader area of clients and kind of allow them to have that access to that content and the shopping experience directly associated with it? You know, I think those are the two areas. So between the fragmentation and the, and the dissecting of the calendar and the digitization of the experience are two trends that we're thinking, how do we that plays very well into our strengths, you know? Yeah, that's such a great point. And I think as much as the industry is really challenged in my work, I'm really seeing a lot of creativity and innovation that's really interesting. Julie, I'd, I'd love to end it with you. The Yes launched now. I know your your launch was de- delayed just a few months, but, you know, we're still in lockdown. Why does now make sense for you to launch a new shopping app? Well, first, we are a startup who needs to get out there. So we've been working on this uh, product for two years. And, you know, but I would say in terms of kind of figuring out the timing, yes, we were originally launching end of March. And obviously, the world had changed so dramatically and everyone's heads were spinning. So we wanted to reassess what was kind of the world we were now facing. And then I think as we pulled back and sort of watched what was happening, we had a couple of realizations. One was that the world is sort of stuck shopping digitally. And so it was as good a t- as time and as any, good a time as any to give people a new way to shop and let them, you know, play around and try this out. And 
I think that what we're seeing is people are picking up new habits during this time. So certainly people are using new apps to order food. And, you know, as we heard from sort of beauty trends, there are new things that people are thinking about trying at their home instead of going to the salon. And so, you know, it's a time where the world is changing and people are shifting the way they think and do things. And so introducing a a new behavior, a new way to shop actually is okay. You know, this is a relevant time to do that. And I think the last piece is just we are working with, as I mentioned, about 150 brands, all of whom are small and medium-sized businesses and anything we can do to help them as their distribution is now more limited because stores aren't open, orders were being canceled by department stores and retailers. And so, you know, all of those things combined, plus a realization that, you know, we have all kind of accepted this first phase of shock uh, to this pandemic. And we're all kind of trying to think about what's next and hope for some reopening and normalcy back in our lives. I think all of those things made us feel like this time was okay to do it. And there were obviously some pros and cons, but that sort of imbalance was an okay time. I hate to say it, but that's all the time we have for today. But first, we have to ask our closing question. What is the one technology you still do not understand? So Yarden, any thoughts there? Yes. Um, hmm, great question. <laughs> Probably a lot of different technologies. Um, I don't mean to get a bit controversial here, but I just don't get Facetune. I mean, I get it. Face like tune. I understand. <laughs> I understand why it's such a hit and why it's so used. I mean, it makes so much sense. But I feel like we're just, you know, setting the bar a bit too high, and we need to mm-hmm. set the bar a bit lower for real life interactions. And I think I just want an app that no matter what makes me look better in person than I do in photo. And so like, how do we get that? <laughs> the reverse. And it, Yeah. And I just, I, I mean, also I'm just so fascinated by it. I think it has a huge impact on beauty and beauty needs and just, you know, the desire for all these um, procedures and services. Um, but uh, there's also like a whole other side to it that, you know, it's just so fascinating that there's a huge population of people that have become very skilled editors. And I feel like we're just not appreciating that part of Facetune enough and that this idea of the right incentive will motivate people to excel at, you know, any skill set. Ganesh, what about you? Yeah, I thought about this, you know, and because I typically think of the technology, we all kind of usually get the the basic science. And, uh, you know, even if we can't explain the engineering, you sort of understand what it does and roughly how it works. But 3D printing I have to be oh, honest yeah. with you, like, I just don't get it, like, at a gut level. Like, I, obviously, I understand the concept at the intellectual level, but, like, it's something I, as the world it seems to be really headed in that direction and how products are really going to be manufactured. I It's going to be me when I grow old, I'm like, and my kids are going to be laughing at me about that because I'm going to be like, how does this thing work, you know? And Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, we'll have to do a future episode on that. Um, <laughs> Julie, what about you? The fascination of teens with TikTok. <laughs> My daughter has 17 years old. She said it is her single most favorite way to spend her time is watching TikTok. Blows my mind. Wow. I just don't understand the psychology behind that generation and their fascination with it. Yeah. I think the thing about TikTok is that you can't do it. Like you can't just come in and watch one video. The whole appeal is that like you get sucked in and then you get in on these like inside jokes that you feel like you're a part of. And so, yeah, so I've been avoiding TikTok for the last few months because it's just 
dangerous territory. Julia, talking about your daughter, my, my wife is completely obsessed with it. She doesn't watch TV anymore. And so in the nighttime no now, I'm in a different room because she lies in bed, literally just watching TikTok because and I'm watching TV. Wow, that's amazing. Because my daughter's theory was that it's definitely like the first like true generational divide. Um, You know, she's like, you just don't, it's just a different appeal in a way that you don't understand. So I'm impressed that your wife is that, you know. It it always makes me think of that, um, of Wayne's World, you know, when they're like, watching Wayne's World and then Cassandra I, I don't know if you've seen it but Cassandra like is like what are these guys doing they're filming themselves in their basement and the like producer is just like so confused by it uh-huh. <laughs> and that was like years ago when did that movie come out and that's exactly what's going on now but everyone's doing it it's so true <laughs> Well, thank you all so much for joining the Tech Edit. This has been such a great conversation. No, thank you for pulling it together. It was fascinating. Thank you. Join us next week for another deep dive into the tech and innovations shaking up fashion and retail. As ever, I'll be joined by the guests at the forefront of these changes. Make sure you follow or subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or via the Vogue Business website. For more coverage on the future of fashion and technology, subscribe to my weekly Technology Edit newsletter at VogueBusiness.com. Our executive producer was Alan John. My name is Megan McDowell, and that was The Tech Edit. Thanks for listening. The Tech Edit by Vogue Business is brought to you in association with PayPal Credit, helping your customers buy now and pay over time. Go to paypal.com forward slash PayPal Credit to learn more.